1: at Let It Roll Cast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at Podcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www. PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate hosts a second Let It Roll telepathic interview with the still-living but unavailable Marianne Faithful and her co-author David Dalton to discuss her autobiography, Faithful. This episode gets into the adultery, betrayal, madness, arrests, Public crucifixion and aftermath that racked the Rolling Stones inner circle in Brian Jones's final years. Email us at let it roll podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're not joined by anyone because once again, we're doing a telepathic episode. This is a continuation of the one we did last week about Marianne Faithful's autobiography co-written with David Dalton called Faithful, an autobiography. And I'm not sure exactly where I left off, but I know that I didn't talk about her fling with Keith Richards, which um, happened on the same night that... She uh, took LSD with Brian Jones, Keith Richards, and uh, Tara, the Guinness heir, Tara Brown, I want to say. Um, But uh, at the end of the night, both Brian and Tara had uh, passed out, and Keith took Anita – or not Anita, but Marianne – to a hotel. And she said that it was uh, the best night of lovemaking of her life, and that – at the end of it, Keith said, um, you know, Mick really loves you. You should you should give him a toss. And uh, he's smitten, all right, Marianne. Is he really, go on, love, give him a jingle. He'll fall off his chair. He's not that bad when you get to know him, you know. And then she sums it up with said, I wish now I'd had the strength to say, fuck Mick, man. I like you. It's something I could sum it up now. But in those days, it was totally beyond my range. Not that it would have helped. I was being given the brush off. And I knew Mick would be kind to me. Keith was a much more dangerous entity, really, much more mysterious. Maybe it was all for the best. Anita was still with Brian when I spent the night with Keith. Keith and I were on our own. But I knew in my heart of hearts that Keith was already in love with Anita. I could just feel that whatever he wanted, I wasn't it. I was too English and too conventional for him. So there's that little plot twist. This is such an incestuous tale um, between the five of them, Mary and Faithful, Mick Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, Brian Jones, and Keith Richards. But shortly after that, uh, Mick's courtship of Anita begins uh, seriously. I think I've mentioned a little bit about that. They they bonded over their knowledge of the Holy Grail myths and literature thereupon. And uh, you know, Mick comes out of this it's it's not a thing because compared to Brian Jones. Mick certainly seems like a much better person and even compared to Keith Richards he's he's um a much more conventional person but he also comes across a little bit unsympathetic in that he's so normal and um yet has his own some of his own personality flaws and and twists but the next big development is the infamous Redlands bust and this was a morning when or an evening when the stones group decided to have a party at keith richards uh medieval mansion called redlands out in the country and george harrison attended briefly that day and as soon as he left the police uh raided the party and um the whole group had been taking lsd and were enjoying what uh Marianne faithful describes as a wonderful feeling of warmth and security as the evening progressed, and then suddenly uh, the police storm in and arrest everyone. And Marianne was uh, had just taken a bath and she had wrapped herself in a giant bearskin rug and was naked, and the police were very scandalized. And the News of the World tabloid, which is uh, later shut down, I think, in 2011 for hacking the phones of the victims of, of the parents of the victims of child murders. Um, they were just as awful in the sixties as they were in the two thousands and they pretty much crucified, uh, Marianne faithful. And, um, she describes the aftermath, but first she describes how Keith became a legend and, here's here's what she had to say about this. Before the Redlands bust, Keith had been overshadowed by Mick and Brian both, but his defiance on the stand in court made him a major folk hero. This was the beginning of Keith's legend, a symbol of dissipation and the demonic. And the amazing thing is that sub- subsequently he actually became that. Satan's right-hand man with the skull rings and demonic imagery, he turned it all to his advantage. And that was um something that uh, that... Marianne was not able to do, that she was not at all prepared for the tabloid level of publicity and scandal that was centered around her and the Stones. And for Mick and Keith, they both turned it to their advantage and, and you know became much more well-known figures. After this bust, they were second only to the Beatles as far as cultural importance. But for Marianne Faithful, she was um, pretty much destroyed. Publicly and privately, and she says one of the casualties was my mother. It was after all the scandal that things began to fall apart for her. She started drinking heavily. She stopped showing up up for work. She rarely went out of the house. She was ashamed about the Mars Bar gossip, and that's referring to this folk tale I think I mentioned last time that when the police arrived, supposedly Mick Jagger was performing Kennelings on Mary ann Faithful with a Mars Bar. Um, I hope that Apple Podcast can forgive me for discussing this. Uh, 60-year-old ridiculous gossip but that's the story (laughs) and um anyway the the pretty much killed her mother and and had a massive impact on herself and uh she said um summed it up That A curse is a very real thing. Like the Lady of Shallot, I got into a boat, painted my name on it, and drifted downstream. I've always been very suggestible. It's one of the reasons I have to keep so self-contained today. I don't live with anybody. I don't want people to influence me too much. But when I was young and impressionable, I must have believed those hate letters I got. And what they said about me came to be... Somehow the grotesque folktale of the Mars bar stuck to me, and it probably always will. I should have taken a cue from Mick. Mick spewed it out, recovered, and went on with his life. Forget what the cops think. If you want to cry, then cry, baby, cry, she said. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this is a, a song by the Rolling Stones called Shine a Light from their Exxon Main Street album. And it's widely believed to be the song that Mick Jagger wrote for Brian Jones shine a light. And tellingly, uh, Keith Richards didn't play on it at all. stone shine a light Mick jagger's tribute to brian jones with mick taylor on guitar keith richards nowhere to be found um not a hypocrite at least keith you can give him that and then um the next big element in the story is is the moment in tangiers when keith and anita scone together and abandoned Brian Jones, the whole Stones camp abandoned Brian Jones in Morocco, which he richly deserved, but nonetheless it was traumatic. Um, Marianne tells the story. Of traveling to Morocco with Brian and Anita, and uh, what she didn't know was that Anita and Keith had already begun an affair in the back of Keith's Bentley. That the 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 other threesome, Keith and Brian and Anita, had had driven to Morocco in Keith's Bentley, and Brian had felt fallen ill and had to be hospitalized in France. And while Anita and Keith were alone in the car, they uh, consummated their relationship. But didn't tell Brian at this point. And so Marianne then flew out. Anita flew back to England. She and Marianne flew out together, picked up Brian in France from the nursing home and uh, and took him to Gibraltar. And he he, he was dead set on going to the Rock of Gibraltar because he wanted to play tapes of the soundtrack he had made for um, uh, a movie that Anita Pallenberg starred in called A Degree of Murder and brian had done the soundtrack he it's it's pretty interesting soundtrack it's not available anywhere except on bootleg dvds of the movie it was never released as a, as a standalone recording but you can find it on youtube and hear it he he used nick nicky hopkins and jimmy page and all the um session aces of london at the time and it's kind of one of his last works but he he had this desire to play his music for the monkeys that live at the rock of Gibraltar in Spain. And, um, when he turned on the tape player, the monkeys were freaked out by his music and Brian was inconsolable crying and, you know, broken once again. Uh, (laughs) the guy just couldn't, couldn't win for losing, but, um, he, Anita has an interesting insight that or sorry, Marianne, I keep calling her Anita, but she says, While Brian was frenziedly playing his music to the monkeys, Anita would say Don't you think Brian looks very pale and so dull and not very alive? He's very bloodless, wouldn't you say? And I looked at him and had to agree. Well, yes, he does look a bit peaky. He didn't look too well, but I liked the way he looked. He had that romantic pallor of the very ill. I couldn't even hold up my end of the conversation, much less help Brian. But I remember looking at Anita, and it seemed I had never seen anyone so gleaming and alive and vibrating. She was dazzling. And next to her was the fading, pathetic Brian Jones, looking very sickly and he barely made it through another year after that, maybe a little longer. He wasn't quite on his last legs yet. He was still trying to hold it together, trying to hang on to the woman he adored. And then um, she describes how Brian and Anita got in a fight, and Brian um broke his arm trying to hit Anita and instead hit the iron frame of a window. And actually, this is not the trip where they dumped uh what Keith and Anita, this is this is a previous trip. Um, that, that Brian and Anita managed to maintain their relationship through this one, but then um, soon after they go back to Morocco and and and, and it's and they're dumped. And um, it was in Morocco that Anita, Anita sloped off with Keith. Keith is a very straight arrow. He was appalled that Brian had beaten her up. And, of course, Keith had been in love with Anita for ages, never saying anything to anybody. I don't think he ever thought he'd get Anita, and he wouldn't have if Brian hadn't acted like such an asshole. After the scenes in Morocco, Keith came along like the proverbial knight on the white charger and carried her off in his Bentley. He'd just gotten that Bentley, and he'd taken it all the way to Morocco. He'd had it driven there, that crazy thing with men and their cars— And then she has an interesting note about Mick in this context when Keith has stolen Anita. Marianne describes Mick was wonderful at this time, really surpassed himself, loyal, true proper, and just great in every way. Brian, Keith, and Anita were all behaving abominably, but Mick was cool and honorable throughout the whole business, always trying to do the best thing, taking the higher moral ground. He didn't get involved in petty games, but because of his love for Keith, he was unable in the end to sustain his objectivity. When you love somebody, you can't help but take sides. And with Anita and me already very close, Brian soon found himself shut out altogether. Then there's a very interesting story, that's very atypical of Mick. And she describes being in Italy uh, in Genoa when the Stones played a show. And it, it was very nip and tuck whether or not the Stones would even be able to do that tour because Brian was so upset that Anita uh, had left him. And also that the entire Stones organization had abandoned him in Tangiers, literally with no money, nothing. He, he They sent him out on a fool's errand to uh, downtown Tangiers. And when he came back to the hotel, it was all empty and he'd been abandoned with no money, no credit cards, nothing, uh, managed to get his way home. And and the only way that he agreed to do this uh, European tour they had booked was Anita promised she would come back to him. And um, briefly, they did reignite their relationship, but then he beat her up one more time, and and that was the last straw. But Marianne has her own horrifying story. And the, 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 the Stones played this gig in Genoa, Italy, and she describes it, when Mick came back to the hotel room, she says, evidently there had again been riots at the show that night. People had been trampled. Mick came straight from the concert to the hotel. I was waiting for him in the bed in my negligee. The minute he walked in, he was a different person. It was as if he were someone I didn't know. He was absolutely possessed, as if he had brought in with him whatever disruptive energy went on at that concert. It goes both ways, from the performer to the audience, and then it comes back at you magnified. He didn't say a hello. He didn't even acknowledge me. He just walked over to the bed and began slapping me across the face. Not a word was spoken. I was absolutely terrified, and I fled into the big white bathroom. He followed me in there and continued to hit me. He beat me quite badly, and I didn't have a clue why. My first thought was, oh shit, he must have found out that I had a little night with Keith. Such a ridiculous thought. In any case, I knew Keith would never in a thousand years have told anyone. Even Anita didn't know. Nothing brought it on. It just erupted out of some inner turmoil as if a demonic force had taken him over. When it was over, it was like a hurricane that had spent itself and stopped. We never, ever mentioned it. To this day, I don't know what it was about. He never did anything like that again. He's not the kind of person who would. I don't think it was anything to do with me or him. He didn't know what he was doing, a victim of mob lunacy. So that um, is something right there. I, I think that would get Mick canceled these days, but that's a pretty minor um tale in this <laughs> and, and and Marianne's account. And then she's got some more interesting insights about her life with with Mick. She says, living with Mick, I learned early on to disregard myself as a sexual entity he was the sex object to everybody. It's much easier to appreciate someone's erotic fascination, their homosexual appeal when you're a long way away from it, believe me. To feel all that charge and to know it mustn't come to you is a funny feeling for a woman. So that was, um, <laughs> that, was that. And then she's got some insight about Mick and Keith uh, and the aftermath of the trial and acquittal after the Redlands incident, the Redlands bust, both of them were found guilty. And Keith in particular was looking at a a full year sentence for the crime of having allowed his house to be used to smoke hashish. And uh, Mick was looking at a shorter sentence because he had some pills in a pocket of a jacket. They are actually Marianne's pills, but Mick gallantly took the blame and was looking at some months in prison for that. But the backlash was so big that the the British authorities um, threw the cases out and and um, I believe acquitted him um, afterwards. But Marianne has a note that says the trial and acquittal bonded mick and keith but it created a very odd dynamic for keith it was just an alliance within a group but for mick it was a lot more than that it had all the irrationality and passion of a love affair it's a pity that the things put mick down for what make him mick his narcissism and his queeniness Lennon and mccartney had a similar bond between them not as strong of course but both groups had these duennas these strange bisexual almost witchy figures as managers brian epstein and andrew oldham And she talks about going to see the Maharishi, et cetera, et cetera, and has one last note I thought was interesting about mick's um use of lsd she says i think all that acid in the 60s did make a world of good he transcended all his pettiness his guardedness mick became much more open and bloomed and everything went brilliantly for him now when i read interviews with mick he says he regrets it all terribly he says during this time he wasn't really himself and of course something did take us over mick allowed himself to be a channel and in the end that bothered him lsd burned away all the dross ultimately he completely rejected it Let's see what's the next piece So I guess it's time to listen to our next song And this is this is from Marianne's uh, Broken English album This is the title track of it from 1979 This was her big comeback album after years in the wilderness Living literally uh, penniless and homeless as a street junkie For, for at least a couple years uh, Completely on her own But this is the song Broken English The title track of her 19, 1979 album Why And that was Marianne Faithful's performance in broken English from her comeback album in nineteen seventy-nine, which is I think a little dated the back the back end music of it very much of its era, but it's an era that's aged well, so so that. But the next big element of the story of this five sum that I'm focused on. And apologies to Mary Ann Faithful and her fans. I'm really less interested in her story per se than I am her relationship with Mick and Keith and Brian Jones and Anita Pallenberg, just because I've been obsessed with this particular um, dynamic my entire <laughs> since I was 15 years old, and she's helped me understand it. But one of the things that happened next is that Mick and Anita – started a movie called Performance, directed by a guy named Donald Campbell, And uh, another actor named James Fox played it. And it's the story of a rock star, a reclusive rock star, and a gangster who breaks into his house. And there's some role reversal wherein the gangster played by James Fox, who in real life was, a, was actually an upper crust actor, uh, uh, is shocked by the decadence of, of the rock star as played by Mick Jagger. And she talks about how Mick based his role of Turner uh, as a combination of Brian Jones. And Keith Richards, um, she says, my reading of Turner was as a symbolic figure, vaguely tragic, a little pathetic, but still with an edge. He was the archetypal 60s rock apocalypse character, a pre-Raphaelite Hamlet. We worked it out very carefully and put it together, element by element. I suggested he start forming his character based on Brian. Also, his hair should be a very strong, definite color. To do Turner as a blonde would have been too much, and the Andy dyed it black, very black, a Chinese black like Elvis's hair. The idea of using Brian as the basis for Turner was a good start. But as soon as you began rehearsing the script, it was obvious this was too simplistic. Characters on the stage, and especially in movies, are composites like dream characters. So we thought, what about Brian and Keith? Brian with his self-torment and paranoia, and Keith with his strength and cool. Mick's personality was not dark enough or damaged enough to support a mythic character such as Turner. Turner was a sort of jaded Prince of Denmark street, but Mick was no Prince Hamlet. There's nothing truly mythic or tragic about Mick. He's too normal, too sane for any truly bizarre fate to befall him. Brian and Keith seemed, if not actually tragic figures, at least faded personalities. Human beings with fatal flaws caught in the toe of deep undercurrents. All Underneath all these overlays, a lot of Mick bled through. So in the end, you had a wonderfully complex characterization. He did his job very well. So well, in fact, he became this hybrid character. What I hadn't anticipated was that Mick, by playing Brian combined with Keith, would be two people who are extremely attracted to Anita, to Anita, and who were in turn obsessed with her. And uh, then she gets into Donald Campbell, the director, and says, let's face it, we're all pretty lightweight, pretty naive compared to Donald Campbell." Donald was older and much more devilish. This is why Andy was afraid for James's immortal soul. Andy was James Fox's wife. She was very chary of Anita, too. Anita was the dark queen under an evil spell, so gorgeous and dangerous. But the sarcastic, sophisticated, and decadent Donald was the major Dracula. Donald's method of directing was to set up a vortex. Into this vortex went into every disorienting thing you could imagine. God knows what drugs were being taken on the set. And then add to all that the indiscriminate sex. Thank <laughs> you. James Fox was, of course, very fearful about sex and drugs and rock and roll, but he was even more terrified of his own dark side. From a very proper and respectable British theatrical family, he was suddenly plunged into a den of iniquity filled with drug-snorting, hedonistic rock and rollers, and decadent, sexually ambivalent aristocrats. His sole bearings depended on Mick, someone with whom he already had a problem gauging the genuine from the put-on. He was totally out of his depth. Performance exposed a lot of things and exposed a lot of people to things that they had wisely stayed clear of. While performance was being filmed, I felt quite erroneously that I had nothing to worry about. I never imagined Mick would be fucking Anita. I see Anita as very much a victim of all this, the vulnerable one who should have been looked after and protected. Her breakup with Brian over the previous year had been devastating. It was only natural she would find Mick's incarnation of Turner irresistible. Their characters were propelled toward each other, and she already had a hard time distinguishing what was real and what was imaginary. The only person who was never out of control and might have showed some restraint Was Mick, but poor Mick was on a bit of a high wire himself. He was somewhat cowed by Donald Camel, who had a ferocious temper and would go off like a firecracker, unleashing blistering tirades. Mick found the whole process of filming very bewildering. I tried not to think at all. I concentrated on living with my mother and Nicholas in Ireland and pretending everything was okay. Even the customarily fearless Keith couldn't handle this one. While filming was going on, Keith deliberately stayed away from the set. To go up there would have meant a head-on clash with Mick. Keith knew that if he had ever done so, it would have been the end of the band. And so yeah, I mean this this is uh <laughs> crazy stuff. The 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 incestuousness and and double crossing and and this is kind of um at the point, I guess, when Mick checkmated Keith, when he, when he took Anita away from Keith, even if it was only temporary, Keith and Anita went on to get married and have children together. Um, and Keith wrote Gimme Shelter about this period of his life. Uh, he was spending a big part of the time in, in his limo outside the film set, bleeding to death emotionally while his woman and his best friend were having an affair. And Marianne uh, sums it up, says, uh, Certainly, Mick came out of it splendidly, with a new, shining, and impenetrable suit of body armor. He didn't have a drug problem, and he didn't have a nervous breakdown. Nothing really touched him. In the same way that some actors get to keep their wardrobe, Mick came away from performance with his character. This persona was so perfectly tailored to his needs, he'd never have to take it off again. This is Mick Jagger, as far as most of the world is concerned, and by this point, probably to himself as well. He came out of performance with two new characters, actually. The one we know and feel whatever it is we feel about it that mick and another more sinister one the gangster figure heart of stone type this character first appears when mick sweeps his hair back and becomes the ruthless thug who will do anything including killing people for money the money mad mick devotee of mammon heavy 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 duty stuff it's time to take a sponsor break and when we come back we'll uh pick up more of the wreckage with um mary faithful
3: Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon.
2: And there's a whole chapter uh, in the book called My Frankenstein. And this is where Marianne, uh, you know, she's like, if I'm going to be trapped with these Lord Byron type characters, where's my masterpiece? Comparing herself to Mary Shelley, who came out of that experience of of being married to Percy by Shelley, the great poet, and knowing Lord Byron, the other great poet, so well. And, of course, wrote the book Frankenstein as uh, as a result of a ghost story contest that she'd had with the two and another another friend, and and so Sister Morphine, which we played last time, became becomes Marianne's um, masterpiece. But what I didn't uh, re- remember last time was that Decca, her record company, pulled the record off the off the market after only two days in release, and then two years later, it's re-recorded by the Stones, uh, taking her credit off, which she had to sue to get the credit put back, which. Since she had recorded and released it with her own name on the songwriting credit, she had a pretty good basis for um, But then she talks about uh, Mick and Keith and and the end of Brian and kicking Brian out of the band. That, that She says, as 1969 plunged on, I was becoming increasingly worried about Brian. I could feel something very nasty coming. So I suggested to Mick that we throw the I Ching about Brian and see what we should do. It was just dusk when I threw the coins. The reading I got was Death by Water. I turned to Mick and said, that's odd, isn't it? And he said, my God, do it again. I did it again and got the same thing. We just looked at each other. Fin- finally, I said, look, this isn't good at all. We've got to do something. And he said, we have to phone, see if he's all right. And he actually did. It must have been guilt. Brian was at Redlands, that's Keith Richards' mansion, with Tom Keelock. Tom Keelock was a semi-sinister minder um and bodyguard and driver that the Stones had. And she says, Brian must have been astounded to get a call from Mick, the cynical, mocking Mick whom he hated. But there was another side to Mick, and that was the Mick who was on the phone to Brian saying, hey, how have you been, man? Brian was just delighted. He was always pathetically grateful for any tiny crumb of kindness and he responded effusively he opened like a flower oh mick how lovely please come down and have dinner with us so that's what we did we got into the bentley and off we went our intentions were fine we got down to redlands and there was brian with suki poitier she was very beautiful but perfectly silly and the thing to know about suki po- Poitiers was she was the woman in the car with Tara Brown uh, when he blew his mind out in the car uh, uh, to get immortalized in the Beatles' Song Day in the Life. She was literally in the car with him when he killed himself in the car wreck. And, you know, it's pretty ghoulish that Brian and Suki ended up partnering after uh, Anita left Brian for Keith, and, and Suki was dealing with the grief of losing Tara Brown. But she was no Anita Pallenberg. Anyway, they arrive at Redlands, And um, Suki was very suspicious, and our sudden concern did look a little like Greeks bearing gifts. I think we were bearing gifts, actually. They'd cooked us dinner, but Mick is fussy about his food and drink. Everything has to be perfect. He's a Leo and a star. So we walked in, and without warning, Mick had one of those terrible mood changes that he had on occasion. So he turned to me and said, I can't eat this shit. We'll have to go out. So after coming down on a friendly visit in care and concern, we ended up mortally offending Brian. I wish I could say I hadn't, but I did the only thing I knew then, which was to acquiesce. I could have said, why don't we all go out? But there were so many other things going at once, so many factors to consider. I think Brian was probably too ill to go out or too paranoid. He was very frazzled. Perhaps that was why they cooked dinner there in the first place. But um, they go out to eat and, and then come back and then... Mick and Brian end up in a fistfight about everything, I suppose. Nothing was said. They were just flailing about hitting each other. I think in a way that must have been Mick's chosen form, the physical, since he was such an athlete. It was sort of a courtly thing to do, like jousting, except here it was a rather ungainly punching and shoving match. What a joke. There was Mick in perfect physical condition, and Brian, who could usually barely move, moved. moved. But swelled by rage, he became quite agile. Until, in the midst of battle, Brian fell into the moat. That ended it. I thought death by water must be a symbolic message. What a relief! The angle that she doesn't put in this story—that someone else, and I can't remember who, which biographer has the rest of the story in it—but um, apparently Brian jumped into the moat and pretended he was drowning. And Mick uh, ran in to save him. And as soon as Mick gets into this filthy, muddy moat, Brian stands up to his full height and he's only, you know, knee deep in the water. And Mick (laughs) was even more furious that he'd been tricked into... Uh, trying to rescue Brian Jones And then a little bit more about Brian She says, Brian died in a drunken muddle With no one trying very hard to look after him A puffy, bewildered, raging, depressed muddle When the phone rang at four in the morning It was always Brian A thin, faint voice with labored breathing Like a ghost who would looked up your number in a call box Someone fading away before your very eyes One of the things that keeps you alive When you're on the skids Is that people care what happens to you It's your lifeline And with Brian, nobody really cared anymore He would test levels. Of endurance, and no one had any patience left. He did it all the time, endlessly. For Brian, relations with other people always took place in the extreme. The only kind of affection or friendship he can to- could tolerate was unconditional love. For men, women, girlfriends, chauffeurs, waiters, groupies, hangers on, even with that, he could only just about cope with life. Anything less, he found about tricky they find out brian dies the the stones have a concert on july 5th just a couple days i think literally two days after brian died and then uh mick and Marianne fly to australia where they're going to star in um ned kelly and uh i'm going to play another song when i come back i'll tell you what happened in australia and this is um the ballad of lucy jordan from again from the broken english album this was written by the great shel silverstein the country songwriter was Marianne Faithful doing the ballad of Lucy Jordan. And then so she tells a tale of arriving uh, in Sydney. And she she says, by the time we got back to the hotel in Sydney, I'd forgotten not only where I was, but who I was. I looked in the mirror. What I saw was a very thin, frightened face. I'd cut my hair. I was anorexic and my skin looked cadaverous. I saw someone literally falling apart, someone with blonde hair looking very scared. In my drug-induced stupor, she'd been dropping two and alls the barbiturates all the way on the flight i dimly recognized the ravaged face of brian jones staring back at me i was brian and i was dead so then she goes on and takes all the pills deliberately overdosed and she says um mick was asleep i walked around the room i looked out the window our hotel room was on the 54th the 45th floor and it looked out over sydney harbor i attempted to open a window but the windows didn't open had i been able to open the window i would have jumped the two and alls were taking forever to kick in i looked down and saw things on the street that shouldn't have been there i recognized a number of people and waved to them and then i saw brian jones at that moment i went into a coma that lasted six days when I first spotted Brian, he was far below at street level, but greatly enlarged, a blow-up of himself. Various parts of him, his face, his hands, expanded and extended toward me as he spoke. And then he rose straight up, as if on a shaft of air, until he was directly opposite the window of our room. He was boxy with a wan face, dressed in King's Road medieval and lace and fur with red and yellow striped pants. His hair was green, and Buddhist lightning bolts were tattooed on his palms." As he raised the palms of his hands to me, he smiled that pan smirk of his. There was no weather, no wind or rain or sunshine or darkness. There was nothing recognizable at all. The grandeur and enormity of the place had the phantasmagoric mood of illustrations by Edmund Dulac or Durer's engravings of hell. As we were walking along, I realized that Brian had no more idea of where we were going than I did. Obviously, he had woken up dead, not known where he was, and decided to call for me. It was the nicest chat I ever had with him, actually. He told me how he had woken up and put out his hand for his bottle of Valium and about the panic that had seized him when he found nothing there. He said he had been lonely and confused and had brought me to him because he needed to talk to somebody he knew. We strolled blithely along as the quivering earth crumbled away on either side of us. And he told me about his miniature coronation set with the Beefeaters and Coach and Horses. He said he liked books about railway bridges, guides to switching boxes, George MacDonald's fairy tales, and Fox's books of martyrs. I said I'd get them for him when I got back to London. Afterward, he became very weepy like the mock turtle in Alice in Wonderland and said he was very sorry to put me to all this trouble. He didn't seem to know he was dead. Brian, dear, isn't this lovely? I said, trying as usual to distract him from grisly realities. But my sudden descent to small talk must have tipped him off that something was wrong. I was speaking to him in the patronizing way. People talk to mad people, children and small dogs. Nevertheless, he plunged ahead in typical Brian fashion. Death is the next great adventure, he said portentously. Oh, yes, I quite agree, I said fervently, as if we were speaking of a new religion or a new drug. His mood changed abruptly. Was it beginning to dawn on him where he was? Had I perhaps transferred the thought telepathically to him? He turned and put his hands on my shoulders. Welcome to death, he said brightly. I wasn't quite ready to be that enthusiastic about our situation. Tried to treat it like a joke. Oh, is that where we are, I asked. Well, you won't find any hotels here, darling, or any restaurants either. You won't need them. We came to the edge of the landscape. It dropped off abruptly and completely. There was a very obvious point where he chose whether to go over the edge or not. Brian said, coming, and slipped off the cliff. I drew back. I heard a a chorus of voices calling to me, but I wasn't ready just yet. And then she describes opening her eyes uh, six days later. And um, uh, tells the tale of how nobody really wanted to hear that story, that everybody she told that story. Just acted like she was a lunatic and and wanted wanted no part of hearing it. And then uh, she wraps up what the impact of Brian's death was on the group. She says, Brian's death acted like a slow motion bomb. It had a devastating effect on all of us. The dead go away, but the survivors are damned. Anita went through hell from survivor's guilt and guilt, plain and simple. She developed grisly compulsions. One of them was that terrible business of cutting out pictures of Brian and sticking them up on the wall and in the morning tearing them all down. It was a recapitulation of what Brian used to do with his tapes. It's a psychotic thing people do when they've gone over the edge. They create something and destroy it. Keith's way of reacting to Brian's death was to become Brian. Brian. He became the very image of the falling-down stone junkie perpetually hovering on the edge of death. But Keith being Keith was made of different stuff. However much he mimicked Brian's self-destruction, he never actually disintegrated. And so, yeah, that's, that's it. She says, in families, there's always one person, almost always a woman, who is designated to be the mad one. In my circle, I was the one elected. And since we lived our lives in the pages of the tabloid press, I became famous for it so um and then uh one last little nugget she has is is she describes She says, Brian was so far ahead of Mick and Keith. When Mick and Keith were up on stage trying to learn how to be sex objects, Brian already had illegitimate children. Brian was acting on it faster than anybody else. He knew his stuff very well. In the beginning, Mick and Keith were still schoolboys. Brian was the one who did the hustling, getting people together and believing it, knowing it, unlike Mick, who couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to become an accountant. Brian was the one saying, look, it's going to happen. We're gonna make it. At the same time he had it in his hand, he could control it, and so he did control it. And when they found out he was right, that they were going to make it, and they did make it, instead of appreciating what he did, they resented it. And that's when Brian's doom really started. They had a vendetta, Mac and keith a real vendetta. We all saw Brian's death coming. There wasn't a great deal of remorse about it. And in any case, it just wasn't in mixed nature or Keith's either to dwell too long on this sort of thing. Brian's dying was something of a relief. It solved a terrible predicament for them. After Brian's death, I thought we were all in trouble. I didn't know that it was I who was in trouble. And that's the story of Marianne Faithful and the Rolling Stones. So a um, little bit of a warning tale. And let's hear our last song. This is her version of John Lennon's Working Class Hero again from the Broken English album. What yeah. yeah. And that was Marianne Faithful's version of Working Class Hero, the John Lennon 1970 classic, redone in 1979 for her broken English album, and I'd say she claims a song. So final thoughts on all this. Um, at first, just grateful to Marianne Faithful for having the courage to tell her story and tell it so honestly. Uh, you know, as far as we can tell, it, it's honest. Just a devastating thing to get that close to fame, and the Stones were more than just famous; they were cultural symbols of their era and uh, symbols of the change that was happening in that era. I mean, this was a time when you know it was the Beatles or Stones. The Beatles were the good guys for the good kids, and the Stones were the bad guys for the bad kids, and they certainly lived it. And you know, Lennon and McCartney and, and Harrison and Star, they were tough kids from a tough part of Liverpool. They're actually, you know, Lennon was a little bit more middle class than the rest, but they were actual working class heroes, whereas the Stones were much more middle class with the exception of Bill Wyman. But Brian Jones in particular was quite uh, privileged. His dad was an engineer and uh, Mick Jagger's dad was a a PE teacher at at a very nice school. Keith Richards was a little bit more working class with divorced parents, but the stones were very much middle class wannabes who i guess since they had to put on the act worked harder at living it and and brian jones um you know <laughs> he wasn't acting i guess he was he was living it in a way that that impacted mick and keith and i certainly can't blame anyone but him um, for the damage that he wrought and and the scars that he put on Mick and Keith and Anita and Marianne and everyone else he came into contact with. I don't know why I'm fascinated with the guy. I I have been ever since I got the the Rolling Stones High Tide and Green Grass album when I was a kid. And, And there's this fascinating figure standing on the cover and I didn't know who he was and didn't know what he had done and spent the rest of my life trying to figure it out. Since then, there's one last thing about, um, Mick that, uh, I want to say, let's see that Marianne says, um, Let's see. By this time, I don't think he knew any longer where his image ended and the real Mick Jagger began. I wasn't quite sure either. Much of the turmoil for me had to do with Mick's inability to separate himself from his image, his compulsion to see life in a perpetual Sunday supplement where you watch yourself leading your life, but you don't feel anything. It's spooky. But what I didn't know then and can see very clearly now was this was always the arrangement. The pretty girl, the beautiful house, the well-turned-out children, and da-da-da-da-da make everything look right. Everything has to look right from the outside. It's a much harder deal than it seems. I mean, it must be hard if Bianca couldn't take it anymore, because she'd been bred for this. His damn image pervaded everything. I can see now that even the way he dealt with the bust at Redlands was an extension of his obsession with his image. The theater of it took over almost immediately. It was priceless stuff. He could be noble and suffer and be martyred and have marvelous photos taken of him handcuffed in his ruffled velvet suits, like bloody Charles I on the way to his execution. got the full exposure out of it that he always likes to get and so that's the last word on mick jagger and marianne faithful so thanks for listening Uh, next time we'll be back i'm going to be talking about the first of two autobiographies of stone's manager andrew luke oldham who's yet another incredible character in this tale and he tells his tale very well so uh for Let It Roll, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today's book has been Faithful, an Autobiography by Marianne Faithful and David Dalton. Thanks for listening.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at podcast.com. Monday, Nate continues the Let It Roll Nightmare series, with a recast of his 2022 interview with Joel Selvin that breaks down the exact mechanics of the Rolling Stones disaster at Altamont. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.